Welcome back, everyone. Hopefully people are coming back. And if it works to have your video on, it's nice to be able to see people as I'm speaking and then as we have our, our discussion. So if that can work for you to have your video on, for some there may be bandwidth issues, but if it works, uh, that's appreciated. I want to continue with the theme that I opened up to last time, which is could be expressed very, very simply as taking everything as an opportunity for learning. We can say this in different ways. We could say it as taking one's life as a learning process. We could say taking one's life as practice, understanding by practice the, the learning that brings us towards greater freedom, awakening, wisdom, compassion. And taking every experience, we could say, as part of the path. In traditional teachings, there's particularly an emphasis on taking challenging experiences as opportunities for learning. So in Zen, there's the phrase, the obstacle is the path. In Tibetan tradition, there's a phrase, one of the Lojong teachings, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. How's that? You want to put that on your refrigerator? <laughs> turn all obstacles into the path of practice. So this is radical, isn't it? It's very simple to say it, but harder to live with that guidance. It may seem especially hard to learn from difficult experiences, whether they're personal experiences or social experiences. You know, how do we learn from what happened at Club Q in Colorado Springs? What does it mean to take that as part of a learning process? Or, you know, the recent um, climate talks. Sometimes it can actually seem, we can see in retrospect, we had something difficult happen and we did learn from it. And we can see how we can learn from challenges or difficulties. And actually, I think that it can be harder actually to learn from positive experiences, from so-called good experiences, because something in us maybe just relaxes and doesn't pay attention anymore. Yeah, do we know that one? Right? And so um, it may actually be even more radical to keep paying attention when good things are happening and just see what's there. The core principle is that learning comes from openness to experience, being present, looking carefully, and also having some guidance from teachings and having ways of practicing that develop, you know, our wisdom, our compassion, our, our potential for skillful action. And so one formula that I sometimes use that can be applied moment to moment to experiences is this. It has three parts. Be present. Be with what is occurring. Be with emotions, bodily experiences, thoughts. Be with what is occurring. Sometimes it can take a while. You know, if one can have a protracted experience of sadness or grief or anger. Can one be with this process 
first step. Second is see what the response is and see whether there can be a response based on wisdom and compassion, or we might say clear seeing and the kind heart. Because really the, the sense of learning is trying to moment by moment ask what is a skillful response right now to this moment, to this difficult experience, to this wonderful experience, to this neutral experience. And you know, part of that skillful response is going to be internal, could be simply, can I stay being present, being mindful? And some of it is going to be in terms of skillful action. How do I, how do I respond skillfully to something that was said that led me to be irritated or angry? What's a skillful response internally and externally? So there's something like that first step, being present, knowing what's happening. Secondly, set an intention for skillful action. And then thirdly, carry it out. So that could be really applied to every moment. That's the essence of being responsive, which is the essence of our practice. Can I be responsive moment by moment? I identify these three parts. Be present with what's happening. This is where we bring in our mindfulness. Secondly, set an intention based on our best wisdom and compassion and sense of being skillful. And then thirdly, act skillfully as much as possible. That's our practice our whole lives, right? That's our moment by moment experience. You know, and that could be, you know, the, the briefest summary of this whole theme that we're that we're looking at these these sessions, last session and this session. And I want to say that taking everything as potential learning is something that can apply to individuals, it can apply to relationships, groups, organizations, and it can apply to the large society, to the whole society and even the world. And so we can ask, I'm going to be mostly focusing on the individual level and be asking what helps me to take everything as potential learning. But we could also ask that question and maybe it'd be valuable to look at further into what does it mean to say, let me take this relationship or this family as a basis for learning. How does that happen? How do I have a learning organization? You know, some people have talked about that. How do I have a learning community? You know, I've been part of groups where we talked about a transformative learning community. How do we, how do we have that? Right? How do we learn as a society? Sometimes it seems that we look at so many patterns and is there learning? right? Has there been much learning about racism, for example? Have we learned collectively to respond to the climate crisis, right? One could say that in many ways there hasn't been much learning, even though the understanding of the crisis has been there for 50 years. And so what does it take to have a society in which there's learning and development? And we can point, I think, to aspects of history in different countries and say that there has been learning and we can see what, what is important. And again, uh, part of why I'm emphasizing the learning process, including learning from difficult experiences, is to go against, to some extent, the misconception that meditation is just about being calm and blissful and being in wonderful states. As I, as I sometimes mentioned, that may be what brings us into meditation. I think it was what brought me in. I thought the promise of calm and some of my early experiences were beautiful, calm, insightful. And I, I just sort of thought, 
this will just continue indefinitely, you know. And so when the teachers were talking about working with suffering, I thought, at least initially, it didn't last that long, that they were talking about, they were giving instructions for other people, right? Anyone had something like that sense that meditation will just bring wonderful bliss and, you know, take me beyond all my difficult moments? I, I had that, and I could say that I was, uh, by the practice itself, as well as my life, was brought back to reality, right? But that's partly why I'm bringing up this theme, that we sometimes do have those misconceptions. And so, last time I gave a few examples of learning, particularly from challenging experiences, you know, and the, the learning can occur in so many different ways, you know, that for myself, as I went deeper into practice, it changed a lot of even my, um, my motivations. I think I, in a way, learned more deeply and have been learning even who I am. Right, that a lot of uh, our practice is learning about ourselves, being open, because we spend time just being with what comes up. And we see things that weren't apparent before. We see sometimes what in psychology is called shadow material, right? We see material that we've had suppressed, either through family or our own individual experiences or through the society. And we open to those things, and that can that can change change how we see ourselves. And we can, you know, I know for myself, I have my my motivations have changed over time, and I can see, you know, I can see areas, including difficult areas that I didn't see earlier. You know, I I've mentioned sometimes a quote I like from the Tibetan teacher Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He says, or he said that. Um, the self-knowledge that we find in meditation is 70% bad news. Self-knowledge is 70% bad news. I don't know if that was done on the basis of, he said that on the basis of an empirical study, but it's an interesting, interesting comment, right? That there's something, something there. And for me also really crucial was hanging out and I, especially with retreats, but as I learned to do that better on retreats, I could bring it into daily life, learning to hang out with anger or, or um, you know, fear or self-judgment. And in the hanging out with them, I can explore them and see them as I've never seen them before. It's, that's one of the fruits of taking everything as learning. We look at experiences, including difficult experiences, as if never before. You know, I've had, uh, I think I've mentioned from time to time, I had a retreat where I was angry about 16 hours a day for 10 days in a row. It was in the workable range, luckily, and I just was with anger for all that time, and anger's never been the same. And I saw things that were amazing to understand about anger, and, you know, for example, how for me, typically, when I stayed with the anger for a while, it was typically driven by pain, by often by sadness, right? Anger wasn't the final word on things. There was something driving it. That's important to learn. That was incredible learning, you know? Or, you know, other times exploring um, being judgmental of myself or judgmental of others. And hanging out with that for long periods of time and really being able to see, oh, there's, um, yeah, I could very similarly that the, the judgmental mind is driven often by pain, by some kind of unacknowledged pain or, or, or something difficult that's not really seen. You know, I was, I was talking with someone yesterday and I heard a wonderful story of someone who's taking everything as learning. This is someone who has uh, a six-month-old son who was wonderful 
in, the, in his uh, sleep behavior until a short time ago. He would sleep long periods. The parents would be able to rest fairly well. Now he's waking up after one hour and needing attention after two hours, uh, often during the night. And um, how does the person I was working with, uh, is that something I can, he can take for learning? You know, or isn't, you know, it's so in taking it as potential learning, it's saying, how can I approach this, which looks like it's happening every night, although he and his wife alternate, but every other night, can I approach this evening and saying, I'm not going to simply say, oh, I really hope I don't get woken, but rather I'll likely get woken. How can I just be present and kind with that experience and learn from it and see what's there? Interesting, right? To take, take that sort of thing as um, not simply as a problem, right? That's what we're doing when we're taking everything as learning, not taking everything simply as a, a problem or something good, right? But we're saying, let me be with it, let me learn from it. Some of you know a poem by the uh, Persian poet Rumi, the best-selling poet in the U.S., by the way, is Islamic, but I won't go further with that comment. But... Um, Rumi has this poem called The Guest House, right? Many of you probably know this. Wonderful poem. It's really, you could say it's about taking everything as learning. Here it is. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. That guest may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Beautiful poem. Right? It's very much the spirit that we're being guided by here. So again, what especially makes possible taking everything as learning is being willing to be with the experiences that are occurring. It's as simple as that. You know, and, you know, it means learning about all our defense mechanisms, how we shut off, how we don't want to pay attention when things happen. Like I say, I think that happens both with uh, positive experiences and difficult experiences. And it also happens with neutral experiences. <laughs> that sort of covers everything. And so we want to, it really is about continuing to be present and learning to be present with challenging experiences, you know, and I often, in my teaching about being with challenging experiences, I often give the qualification that it's really, really important to know if the difficult experience is in the workable range. So I have that scale of one to 10. And when difficult experiences are maybe in the eight or nine or 10 range, it may not be possible to really be with them openly. It's too hard. And I'm not suggesting that taking everything as learning means being with the eights or nines or tens. Typically, when the eight or nines or tens come, we want to do something which brings us back to balance. And this is, this is relevant to what Sarah was bringing up about some of the challenging experiences. So... We want to be with experiences when they are workable. You know, the anger that I was talking about in my own experience was in the workable range. We want to have, when things are too much, ways of coming back to balance, you know, take a walk, do something physical, listen to music, dance, you know, be with beauty, talk to a friend, all that stuff. 
really, really crucial piece of, of guidance there in terms of being with the challenges. But then if it's in the workable range, we can do as in the Tibetan guidance, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Incredible line that has stayed with me. I first heard that probably 10 or 15 years ago. It really has stayed with me. And how do we do that? It's really pretty simple. Something difficult is happening. We try to bring mindfulness to it. You know, you know, we have a period of anger. Can I stay with it? Explore what it's like in the body. Be with the emotions. You know, when I was looking at anger for a sustained time, I could stay with it. And it was really also important for me to watch how it changes. I would be with the anger and notice it, be in the body, be burning or other stuff happening. And then at a certain point, sometimes the anger would shift to sadness or to a sense of pain. Really crucial learning, right? That the anger is not the last word. There's something beneath it. I think that's generally true of anger. It comes out of some kind of pain. Sometimes when we can touch the pain, it permits us to respond skillfully to what may have triggered the anger without being simply reactive. It permits a skillful response, in other words, when, we, when I could touch in to the sadness, let's say, or the, the pain that's connected with my anger. Maybe someone did something which was not okay, right? And I can be with that, you know? And so how to be with that, how to turn obstacles into the path of practice, be present, hang out with them. It also can be really crucial if, the, if there are difficult experiences for a period of time to bring in as much as possible some sense of compassion or kindness or, you know, uh, some of the time when we just are with ourselves or another with kindness. And I've sometimes taught a very simple three-part self-compassion practice, which, which I, I'd like to do very briefly now. It comes from uh, Kristen Neff. Very, very simple practice. You can do it during the day when something difficult comes up, partly to help uh, bring in some compassion. First step is saying, using your own language, something like, this is hard, this is difficult, this is painful. And just say something like that, and you can feel that it's hard or painful. Second step, acknowledge that this is something that others experience as well. You know, I'm experiencing anger. Other people get angry at something that wasn't fair, let's say. This is a common human situation. Second step, acknowledge that. Third step, offer oneself some kind words, you know, may I be with this anger skillfully and with compassion, or may I hold this with kindness, or whatever it is. Very, very easy, simple practice. Acknowledge it's difficult, number one. Recognize the common humanity, number two. And give some kind words or a kind sentiment, number three. That can be really crucial when we're being with obstacles or difficulties, the mindfulness, I think, has to be complemented by something that brings in the kind and compassionate heart. But we can have that attitude that we turn obstacles into the path of practice. There's an ancient uh, Western tradition called Stoicism, which has a very similar approach. This is from um, Marcus Aurelius, a Stoic philosopher, who says, he said this over 2,000 years ago, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Very, very similar understanding. And so if we're with difficult experiences, again, be with it at the level of mindfulness, know what's there, be with it at the level of the body, be with the emotions, notice how the emotions change, notice the narratives, 
notice the storyline and just keep staying with it. Again, the primary tool that we have for taking everything as learning is being present with experience. It's not so much figuring things out or thinking. And so here's, here are two poems. One from the, again, the Persian poet Hafez, who came a little bit later than Rumi, talking about loneliness. Don't surrender. This is from about the 14th or 15th century. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it out more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Does that go against our social conditioning about difficult experiences? I think so. Let something difficult ferment you. Whoa. Not easy. Again, really helpful to start with the ones that aren't the most difficult. Start with ones that are at the five or six range. Work up to the seven, the six or sevens or whatever. You know, a lot of our practice with challenges is being with ones that are quite workable. This is from the poet uh, David White about grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear. You know, and I, w I was thinking about an experience I I've talked about here at times. Um, my uh, mother died somewhat unexpectedly a little over six years ago. And, it, and the death occurred six days before I was set to begin a one-month period of personal meditation. And I, I was in shock. And I still went to the retreat and was in meditation, but it was a lot about grief and experiencing grief, um, not all the time, but much of the time for a month and being open to it. I had some good guidance from people I was working with, but there was so much learning about the, uh, you know, about many things, about the nature of grief, about love, and about uh, opening. The short version of my learning was just let it happen, let it come through you when it's in the workable range and watch where you get stuck, often by narratives, storylines. That was, that was, you know, that was a core learning and um, it came from being able, and I was, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else, being able to be with that be with that experience. You know, I mentioned last time, again, maybe I'll, I'll return briefly to the notion that uh, difficulties, obstacles, when we stay with them in this learning mode, bring gifts. That we, you know, the gifts can be those of insight into, as I was mentioning, insights into the nature of fundamental human experiences like anger or grief or um, being judgmental. And we can see how when we go into difficult experiences, and probably we each, we each have a lot of personal stories about how we learn from a difficult process. You know, maybe while we were in the midst of it, we wanted it to end, but we stayed with it. And there was learning. How many, you know, if could easily tell stories of really major learning from difficult experiences. You can raise your hand. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we can hear some of those stories in a few moments when we have, when we have discussion. The teacher, uh, John Tarrant has a book called the light. He's a Zen teacher. He has a, um, 
a book called The Light Inside the Dark. And he talks about how we're scared to go into the difficult experiences, but he says, when we carry our own difficulties, when we carry our own darkness, we save others from carrying it for us. And there are the gifts, there's the light inside the dark, or we could use other metaphors, the gifts from the difficulties. And one other aspect of difficulties, which can happen really on a everyday level, you know, is that when we have, um, sometimes when we have reactivity or challenging experiences, it gives us an opportunity to clean up our own stuff. That's another way that we can learn from things and have a perspective that a lot of times when I notice myself reactive, it could be judgmental of myself or another, not only can I learn from being with it, but when I do that, I'm actually cleaning up my own seeds of reactivity. It's a reason to say, oh, I'm reactive. I'm really reactive. Oh, an opportunity for cleanup. How's that sound? You know, put that on your refrigerator. I'm being really reactive and upset. Oh, an opportunity for cleaning myself cleaning my own stuff up, right? Another way, another way to look at it. In some Buddhist traditions, there were traditions of having people deliberately go into difficult circumstances. I remember in the Thai forest tradition, I'm not suggesting we should necessarily do this, but I remember in the Thai forest tradition, one teacher, Achan Man, in order to have people work with fear, would have them do walking meditation in front of a tiger's cave. That part of Asian Buddhism has not caught on in the West. But, uh, but, but we might do something like that with some other you know, difficult experience. Sometimes it would mean deliberately when we feel we have the resources to go into something that's challenging or painful or there's, you know, fear, fear there, you know. You know, we can be selective and, and do that. Another dimension of, of taking everything as practice has to do with intention. You know, it can relate to that story I told of a person I work with who wanted to set intentions going to sleep, knowing that he might be woken up in an hour by his young one, right? So setting intentions can be really crucial. Can we go into a situation where we might know there might be a difficulty and say, I want to learn from this and here's what I'm intending to do. Setting intentions is one major way of having everything in our life be practice, be an opportunity for learning. And it's something we can do on an everyday basis. What's a way of bringing practice into this moment? You know, and we can work with intentions. Can I be present when I'm cooking? Can I be present with this discussion? and asking what helps me to do that? Can I weave that through the day? What's skillful right now? And so forth. I think another piece of, another aspect maybe of taking everything as learning has to do again with a heart quality, like something like gratitude. It's really seeing that I think this is uh, fundamental to the sense of Buddhist practice that the whole journey of life is about learning to be free, to be awake, to be compassionate, to be wise. And there can be gratitude at times. And I'm thinking of this partly in relationship to the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving, of course, very very mixed in how we understand it. I won't go into that so much, but the sense of gratitude or thanks can be a part of this. Oh my gosh, 
I can really take my life as learning. I can really see everything as an opportunity for learning. Pretty, pretty amazing to appreciate how I can learn and that I have friends and communities who support me to take everything as learning. So in a moment, I want to, want to go to discussion. I want to just end with a few, um, really, I guess you could call them quotations about taking everything as learning that I, that I have found, that I, I, wanted, I want to end with these. Maybe I'll start with um, Winston Churchill. Ready for Winston Churchill? He said, I'm always ready to learn, although I do not always like being taught. An African proverb, smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. Smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. A Chinese proverb, learning is a treasure that will follow its owner everywhere. Learning is a treasure that will follow its, its owner everywhere. This is from uh, Ofra, Win Ofra Winfrey. I am a woman in process. I'm just trying like everybody else. I try to take every conflict, every experience, and learn from it. Life is never dull. She says, I am a woman in process. And maybe the last one is from uh, someone whom I got to know some and, and interviewed for uh, one of the books that I wrote on connecting inner work with social service and social change. Uh, Dr. A.T. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka. who founded an organization called Sarvodaya in Sri Lanka, which had, I think, 15,000, has 15,000 city and town community groups helping to bring practice to social situations. He talked about having worked for 50 years in this way. And this is what he said. This is also the spirit of learning from everything. When I do something with good intentions and I quote unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that so-called failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment or renunciation. In learning to accept failure, in a sense, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason which is always beneficial to me. Hmm. So let me invite us just to sit with what's there for you from the talk, your own reflections. Maybe examples of your own learning from challenging situations, difficult experiences. And see also if there are any questions you have. Again, maybe something you want to share.
Great, so let's open things up. It looks like we have Christine and then Carolyn. And so please, um, please, Christine. Thanks. Um, so two things that I'm noticing, um, one that I just want to share, which may or may not be useful for folks, um, is at my shul, we are a synagogue, um, we are studying Musar, um, which some folks may be familiar with. It's a um, kind of, as I understand it, somewhat mystical, Kabbalistic um, kind of interpretation of, of core set of Jewish values as they apply to um, soul traits and other things. And so I'm aware um, in this concept of taking everything as learning, we just had a training on heat lamdu. If I'm saying that properly, I don't know if I am. Um, don't know Hebrew super well, but in any case, just that concept of taking everything as learning is something that, um, you know, has been meaningful to me in, in that setting. Hmm. But the other thing I wanted to say is, um, I guess I'm curious, Dr. Rothberg, in regards to this, I, this concept of taking everything as learning, part of me has a reaction because as a white bodied person, mm-hmm. um, and somebody Jewish, I think that I have the privilege of oftentimes being able to do that. And so for example, um, you know, when we think about these deaths by, uh, homicides by gun, let's say recently, mm-hmm. yeah. um, those disproportionately affect people of color oftentimes. And mm-hmm. so while I might be able to sit back, not that it couldn't affect me, it could, Right. But but racism, you mentioned racism. Yeah. And so as a white person, I I can do my best to disrupt racism and challenge supremacy and all these kinds of things. But there's an inordinate privilege attached to being able to see those things as learning. And what I mean by that is simply and then I'll be quiet. <laughs> what I mean by that is simply my life's not at risk. Yeah. Um, right. So that what do you think in terms of the stance of taking things as learning, do you think there's an element of privilege in that? Um, Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Christine, and and thanks. And for other people, although you were referring to MUSAR, which is M-U-S-A-R, just for people interested in that. Yeah, you know, what occurs to me is, particularly in relation to difficulties, that... uh, I gave the kind of the framework of saying we can take, you know, when we look at difficulties or what's painful on a scale of one to 10, that we can be present with and take things as learning when they're not extreme, when they're not eights or nines or tens. And I think what, in relation to that, what occurs to me is that um, for if there are people who are experiencing, ex- having extreme experiences, maybe more often, those may be at an eight or nine, 10 or 10 level when the skillful response is simply to do that which is protective, you know, to really shift away from the difficult experience. Um, and so um, I think being, you know, being present to an experience in the way that we're talking about with mindfulness and compassion is presupposing that it's not an extreme experience. And I think to that extent, I don't know if I want to call it privilege, but it's, it means that we're not, you know, for, you know, not most likely imminently in danger or don't have as many difficult experiences. But, but otherwise, I think it really could be an approach that is um, there for, you know, it could be there for everyone to the extent that it's a workable situation. Yeah, that one, because taking everything as learning doesn't mean being distant or sitting back or not acting, right? I'm, you know, I'm, when I'm saying, so I think sometimes we think about learning, it can be distant or, you know, a little bit removed, but the kind of learning I'm pointing to could mean I really engage with, I don't know, with racism as a a white racialized person. If I really engage with that, I may really want to respond very, very uh, strongly. 
to that situation, right? And so I think you're right in terms of we think of learning as something a little bit removed, but if it's really being open to it and letting it affect one, then I think, uh, again, it's privileged in maybe in that one sense that it's not an extreme experience, but maybe in other ways it, it could really work for pretty much anyone as long as the experience isn't extreme. Does that, does that make some sense, Christine? Um, yes, and I and I still I guess the part that I and I'll let it go, but I think yeah. the part that I'm trying to dive into is um, let's say for we just did a training training it at my shul around yeah. anti dismantling anti black racism right right and so one of my observations is that if I were a black bodied person black skinned person yeah um, maybe what you're speaking to is so if I inhabited that body. It would be an eight, nine, ten for me every time there's another, you know, let's say death by cop, homicide by cop, right, of a right. black person. Might, and might so be, maybe maybe, yeah. maybe what you're saying in that circumstance is for individuals for whom that experience is an eight, nine, ten, taking it as learning is not, I mean, it, that's what I'm trying to get no, that, at. That's that, right. Like, this idea, if it's an eight or nine or a ten, the guidance take it as learning would not be appropriate. But with practices, you know, even eight or nines or tens can be brought into the workable range over time. You can't, you can't force it or say that it should happen, but it's possible. You know, so in other words, there can be uh, being present with something which formerly was an eight or a nine or 10, and one can, one can be with it. And the, you know, the learning might be let me, uh, you know, I want, want to be more active or I want to be more responsive. So, yeah. So it's really, it's really about what's going on for the person. But, you know, in, you know, in, um, I mean, if you look towards many African-American traditions, there are all sorts of ways that one doesn't stay locked into the eights or nines or tens. All sorts of ways to work with things you know, from religious or spiritual traditions or all sorts of ways. So there can be, there can be responsiveness and, and learning, I think. So maybe ongoing discussion. <laughs> okay, thanks. I think uh, Carolyn was next. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you, Donald. Um, my choir is an ongoing place to practice, practice not reacting. But what I want to talk about briefly today, May 21st, a tree fell on my house. It was derecho. It was the big windstorm that you couldn't predict, predict in Ontario and Quebec. And I didn't know I went into shock. I was looking at it and I was waiting for it to pass, the blackness to pass, before I got up to go see my neighbor. And I got up and I fell. I just collapsed. I didn't hurt myself. And I got up, went on. Two weeks later, I lost 17 pounds. I was down to 102. I haven't been 102 since I was probably seven. Um. But the result of that, I started taking care of myself. I ended up at the eye doctors. The security agent took one look at me, put me in a wheelchair, took me under the bowels of the St. Agath Hospital, where I was able to listen to you on a Wednesday for me afternoon. Mm -hmm. So... There are many things, not the least, since, since that happened. I was, I was someone all my life, I could read for two or three or four or five hours. And I was down to like a few minutes. I couldn't concentrate. Gradually after the shock, I was able to read when I wasn't nauseous anymore. I was able to read for longer and longer periods. So that's a huge thing for me but mostly I just want to say because of starting with the studies with you and other teachers 
I was in a place where this really horrible experience didn't, I didn't feel like a victim. It was what it was. And I did as much of my practice as I could. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, so that's, that's what I want to say. It was, you know, a huge, my quality of life for a couple of months was, uh, I was sick. Mm -hmm. Anyway, thank you. Mm -hmm. But I think what I'm hearing is that there was, there was a kind of learning from what was initially really intense, painful experience. Yeah. Maybe it took a while, right? But, but. Yeah, but it, because I've been with the meditation and the studying for a couple of years now, it I I believe I was able to react more skillfully sooner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was a godsend. If that, yeah. which was really good. Great. I'm trying to speak in metaphors. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Kara. Thank you. I think we have uh, Cindy. Um, I just was realizing, listening to all of this, that the two of the biggest ones for me of learning were, I've had them constantly throughout my life because I've kind of always seen my life as learning. But the two biggest, two big ones were I had a younger sister who was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And going through that with her, being with her. And then we also had my parents live with us when they were older. And my mom went into dementia and being with that and learning from that. And what it did was it made me think of it when she was talking about privilege, that the gifts of those for me of just really hanging in there with them and being mm -hmm. with them and being present with them, it goes across everything. It doesn't matter who you are. I found pretty much every family has addiction or has dementia and has some elements of those. And it gave me a doorway, actually, to be able to be with other people. Mm -hmm. And I really and and be present with the pain of mm -hmm. dealing with those things and really grateful I mean, I remember being really grateful after going through things with both of them, my mm -hmm. mom and my sister, mm -hmm. of thinking, I'm really grateful that was in my life, because otherwise I wouldn't know right. what even, it was even like. Even though it was often very painful and maybe at times overwhelming. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, completely overwhelming at times. Yeah. And and my practice definitely helped yeah. all of it. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and does that understanding help you to um, now be with oh, yeah. uh, difficult experiences oh, yeah. in the present. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, All the time. Yeah. yeah. My husband just went through heart surgery mm. and it was the same thing where it was like, and we ended up totally helping someone else that was going through heart surgery because mm. we had gone through all of the scary, horrible things and we could share with them that it was scary and horrible for us and that we got through it and it really helped them. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. I just see it as a thing that opens you up to the world, really. Mm -hmm. It can. <laughs> Thanks, Donald. Thanks, thank you. Thanks very much, Cindy. Thanks for sharing what you shared. Uh, Victoria, please. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I, I didn't have my camera on because my hair has gone berserk, but... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to have on to ask a question. Um, yeah, I just I just wanted to um, say that I I mean, or to ask you, maybe it's rhetorical. Isn't in a isn't in a sense learning part of our existential purpose? Or maybe that's too too um, highfalutin a question. But um, just as an example. Um, we've had a huge amount of loss in my family, a de one death after another, after another, my daughter started losing close relatives when she was very young. So it really impacted her development. And um, she had planned to become a mathematician, a math professor. She loved math, but the, the impact of all of these deaths and having to endure grief um, and sort of 
keep starting life over again as a child, um, it ended up that she, um, what, what sort of surfaced in her was a creative gift, um, an artistic gift, which is a choreography and dance. But what's come out of that is that she's, um, she got a degree in psychology and she's combined the arts and her understanding of grief and loss, which is personal. And now she's backed it up with academic training mm-hmm. to um, provide containers for people to grieve and grieve safely and in community in a creative artistic way. And she can reach people through the arts in a way that just to read a self-help book might not do the trick for some people who are in deep grief or suffering. So to me, that's a beautiful example of how to take a really devastating life experience and not only turn it around as a, not only learn from it, but actually be able to transmit that to to the community and make it a gift for right. not just for the person, but for the community. To, to find ways to be with that process, often difficult or overwhelming, and turn it into something that brings gifts to the community. Right. Yeah. And I think you said, like, is learning our existential purpose. And I think that so many spiritual traditions, that's what's, that's what they're about, really. I mean, we could use other words than learning. You know, I'm, I'm using learning here. We might use other words, you know, development, growth, uh, whatever. Uh, but there's something about, um, you know, we could use education, whatever. But there's something about how do we, how do we have a community and teachings and practices such as that uh, essentially we learn from we learn from life, including the difficult things. How do we how do we do that? You know, and you know, it's not obviously it's not always easy, and we get stuck. But I think that's what traditions are about. You know, the the best our best human traditions are about uh, making that possible. Mm-hmm. And and you know, and an understanding that it's not instant, or you know, that we need sometimes to go through a process and you know, and have ways of working with what's um, painful, difficult, sometimes overwhelming, traumatic, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah. Thanks. I think we have time for one more, if there is uh, one more. And I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm sitting some still with uh, Christine's question. I appreciated that. I think there's we could go further with that one if we, <laughs> you know, if we if we talked for another half hour. There's there's a lot there. Anyone else? Uh, no, we do have a question in the chat. Uh, very good. Thanks, Ileana. Yeah. It says, "Can you please speak about skill in working with?" when the storyline arises. Also, so very grateful and learning a great amount from this group teaching and sharing by others. Okay. Thank you. So this, uh, what was that word? Can, can you speak more about, uh, what was that can word? You, can you speak, can you please speak about skill? In uh, what was that word? Uh, skill. Can you please speak about skill in working with? Still? Am I getting skill. it? Skill. Skill. S-T-I-L-L? S-K. Oh, S-K-I. skill. Okay, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> yes. Skill. <laughs> okay, please? skill. Uh, yeah. In, yep, in working with when the storyline arises. When the story and the storyline arises, yeah. Um, it's a big one. And we do a lot of that work with um, the work I do on transforming the judgmental mind. So a few things. Uh, initially, I think we want to use mindfulness and just be aware of what are my top five or top 10 storylines. So first of all, we just want to, the first step is really uh, tracking the storyline and seeing it. A second point would be to know that negative storylines often occur when we have difficult or painful experiences. And it would be an example of what I teach about often, shooting the second arrow. In other words, I have a difficult or painful experience occur, 
and I might go to a negative narrative or storyline and get really caught in it. Uh, often, you know, blaming myself, blaming someone else, that that would be a very common result of being, of having a difficult or painful experience. Over time, if it's possible, we want to go beneath the storyline, you know, to touch what the painful experience is. So if I, for example, um, have a difficult experience with my boss at work, and I come up with the storyline, my boss never listens, you know, and get really staying with that storyline. There may be some truth to the storyline, but there's going to be some kind of pain beneath it that as long as I'm being reactive to the pain, I probably won't be skillful, right? And so a third element is touching the pain that could be there between be below a negative storyline. And doing that's not always so easy. You know, I, I work with, you know, techniques, for example, to um, sometimes just to be present with the storyline in mindfulness. Sometimes we can ask, is there something beneath the storyline? Another technique is to be with the storyline let it be there in one's experience, and then bring one's attention into the body. The body will often be holding what's beneath the storyline, often a kind of pain, and some could be anger, and we can touch that. You know, and then what we'll experience is that when we actually touch the pain, the storyline will tend to dry up some. So those are maybe three, three starting points uh, to know that a lot of story, and stories can be helpful. They can give some guidance at times. They also, it really depends, are they driven by reactivity or are they coming out of sort of a, a skillful way to see something? And again, so a starting point is going to be really to hold it with, uh, with mindfulness and explore, inquire into it. So I hope that's a starting point. And I hope also that, uh, Sarah, that we've not, maybe not directly, but indirectly looked at some of what came up with your, your sharing. And um, hope that was, hope that was helpful. So let's, um, let's, yeah, did you want to say something, Sarah? If you do, uh, you can unmute and, and speak. I can, yeah. sorry. Yes, uh, yes. The the teaching that you mentioned, the second arrow, I forgot it completely, and that makes a lot of sense to practice. And I appreciate everything that everybody shared because everything relates to me and what's what my family is going through. So thank you very much, and that's very very helpful. I will try to be more skillful with all your teachings. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. And thanks, everyone. It's really it's really a, a community inquiry. And uh, the recording from the talk and the uh, discussion, as well as the guided meditation, will go up on Dharma Seed. I'll try to put it up later today, so that'll be right there. I want to thank everyone for the sharing, the inquiry. Ongoing. We didn't... We didn't reach completion, still a lot to look at. And let's just sit for a moment and invite everyone to say, what comes next? What are my next steps working with this teaching, this way of understanding? How do I want to bring it into the next week? Just sit quietly for a moment. For people in the U.S., it may be taking a Thanksgiving gathering as learning. <laughs> See how that happens.
And then I'll close with the dedication of merit. May our time together, our practice together, be of benefit to ourselves, to those in our lives, and ultimately to all beings. May our time here together, our practice, be of benefit to all, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you so much and uh, see you in December. And thanks everyone. If you want to unmute and just say hi or share something, feel free. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone. Thank you. I'll do my little sharing. <laughs> Thank, thank you, you everyone. Thank, thank you, Eliana. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye for Bye. now. Thank you, Eliana. Yay, Eliana. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye, bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.